I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Dastin, art historian extraordinaire, and myself, Justin Bua. Today, we have a very special guest phoning in, Fiona Davis, a author, speaking of extraordinaire, extraordinaire, author of, you guys have probably read some of her books, The Dollhouse, The Address, uh, and now she is talking about her new book, The Masterpiece. Fiona, what's going on? Well, thank you. I am thrilled to be here. That's what's going on. (laughs) Well, congratulations on the book. We love it. I love it from lots of different angles, the the feminist perspective, and I won't talk too much about the plot because I know our listeners probably, well, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but it is a really exciting narrative, and we have two time periods. You set one in the 1920s and one in the 1970s. And a basic connective thread between the two, to me, seems to be women who are trying to discover or rediscover their identity. And I thought that was really fun. And I'm interested, where does that come from for you? You know, I am really curious in how women's voices and women's agency have changed over time. And so with each of my books, because they're each in two time periods, For me, that's half the fun is figuring out what constraints existed, say, back in the Roaring Twenties for someone who was struggling in in whatever kind of world it is. And in this book, it is in the art world. And then how is that different from the 1970s and how have things changed and how have they stayed the same? Well, I thought that was a really powerful element of the novel and one that I certainly enjoyed from a personal perspective. And then from our art history perspective, I would love to sink in with you into the art worlds that you very beautifully illustrate. And specifically, I thought it was interesting in the 1920s segment that there seems to be this tension that you build up between illustration and fine art. And do you think that that tension is aligned with some of the gender discrepancies that you also mentioned? Because illustration is so often associated with women and fine art associated with men. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I think I think a discrepancy still does exist. It definitely existed in the 1920s where basically anything was a boys club and, and a woman trying to do anything, whether it were fine art or illustration, it was tough to break in. Um, and I, I do think it's it's true today. I think the the fine art world is still dominated by men. Um, and although there's been incredible strides, as you know, um, it's still uneven. Just the idea that you know, illustration and fine art is even separate is a weird concept that Lizzie and I get into that all the time. I mean, a lot of people in the fine art world tend to shun illustrators because they think it's less than, which uh, at one point of time, it was the, you know, the way. And I, I would always argue, Fiona, that, you know, Michelangelo was an illustrator. Rembrandt was an illustrator. Just the idea that Michelangelo is illustrated the Sistine Chapel for Pope Julius II, <laughs> you know, I mean, that was a, that was a, oh, that's gi- a great way of looking at it. I love that. Well, anytime, anytime there's a, there's a monetary exchange, 
that is technically illustration. I mean, how would you define illustration, and what do you think the difference is uh, with illustration and fine art? You know, it's that's so interesting. I think it's a matter of having a client who wants something and is directing you, you know, you have to please the client if you're an illustrator. And I was lucky enough to do some wonderful interviews with an illustrator named Don Morris, who's an award-winning um, illustrator, and really find out what that world's like. And and he was he was so generous with his time and his information. Um, but, you know, in that world, if you don't come up with the right thing, then you don't get paid. So it... You know, that's what that's what happens. And in fine art, and I may be wrong about this, but it really feels like you are creating something that comes from inside you that you just want to try and express with the world um, and get out there. And then the hope is you get an art dealer and eventually a buyer. Yeah, I totally get that. And this is part of the discussion that I have with Justin a lot about this very topic is that so many painters who would be classified as fine artists in quotes, they are also commissioned by patrons. Like the Medici family, they basically had conversations with Botticelli and said, and for the birth of Venus, this is my favorite example, that was in their kid's bedroom. And so there is, there's a lot of lucky girl, but seriously, there's so many slippages between illustration and fine art. And I do think you're right that we have this idea that illustrators are kind of pay for play uh, and then the fine art, that scene, it's a little bit more autogenous, but I think that there's room for nuance in that. Yeah, I think that the there's definitely this idea by the fine art community, which I think really started in the, the 50s, uh, that anybody who is an illustrator is basically pandering, and anybody who is not who was a fine artist is doing it because they have to do it. You always hear fine artists talk about like, it's impossible for me to not do this and I'm doing it for myself. I only create for myself. It's like, <laughs> dude, you're not in a bubble. You don't just create for yourself. You're creating for somebody out there, whether it's your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your, your patron, your aunt, your uncle. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea. And that's why the fine art world has gone absolutely absurd. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in the book, for me, I was discovering this. I, I, you know, I was really learning a lot about the art world as I was researching. And so finding that that um, problem and that, that kind of um, fire that exists between the illustrators and the fine artists, even in a school like the Grand Central School of Art, among the faculty members, you know, as a writer, I'm always looking for drama and conflict. And it was really fun to find that and then really play it up. Oh, that's so fun. So John Singer Sargent was associated with the school, right? He was one of the co-founders. Okay. Um, Edmund Grayson was another one. Mm-hmm. And oh. then the other one I think was a businessman. So were there any interesting tidbits that you discovered about maybe the social interactions between these figures because I always like to say, I know it sounds gossipy, but gossip plus time equals history. So we're really just having a historical debate. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes. And, you know, what was interesting with the Grand Central School of Art, there was not a lot of information. It was really hard to find old um, course catalogs or, or much about it. Um, but my, my research led me to two faculty members who I 
base or who are inspire inspire me in terms of the two characters in in that section of the story. And those two real people were the illustrator Helen Dryden and the abstract expressionist Arshel Gorky, who both taught there right around the same time. And and just reading about them and talk about gossip and you know drama and tragedy. Between the two of them, they, they had it all, to the point that I, I knew if I hewed too closely to their biographies, readers would reach me and say, you know, I don't believe it. Uh, too many bad things happen. Right? That, that could never be. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to hear you mention Gorky because I don't want to give away too much, but one of your characters, Lavon, he is an artist who works at the school, and you describe with such elegant art historical detail this one painting that he is slaving over of a of himself with his mother, and it's it combines memory with lived experience, and it's almost like a a palimpsest for him. And I was wondering if that was based on Arshiel Gorky's painting of the same subject from about the same time. I think he began that in 1926. Absolutely. It's here in New York where I'm based at the Whitney. And and so I I was reading his biography and, and getting really interested in his life. And I thought, oh, I'll go down and see, you know, his works are a lot of places, um, which is surprising. They're hard to find. But that one is in the permanent exhibit. And so I went and just stood in front of it. And it was so haunting when you know the trauma of his childhood, you know, being Armenian and being persecuted and what happened. Um, And I I just wanted to see if I could pull off describing this real work in a book using just words, knowing that a lot of my readers love to do more research after and that they could find it and actually see it. Well, I think you did such an effective job. And it's kind of funny because you describe art with words and we describe art in an auditory format. And <laughs> there aren't visual illustrations in either <laughs> of what we're doing. So it's really art without the art. <laughs> yes, you're right. We're artless, aren't we? <laughs> Fiona, you live, you're, you're, you live in New York, right? You were, you were in the ep in the epicenter of what I believe to be the most important city. I'm from New York City. I'm from Manhattan, born and raised in Manhattan, and live in L.A. now. But I consider New York to be the most powerful city of art. It's like the nucleus of the art world, in my opinion. Yeah, there's just so much here, isn't there? It's it's pretty incredible. Although, I think as it becomes more and more unaffordable, Mm-hmm. Um, that I think artists and dancers and filmmakers are, are starting to go to places like Asheville and Pittsburgh and find communities like that, which I think is a shame. I think New York as an artist haven is going to lose a lot of its influence if it doesn't start treating artists well. What neighborhood are you, are you living in? I'm in the Upper West Side, so I can easily walk across to the Frick what, or to yep. the Met. Where, where in the Upper West Side? I'm from the Upper West Side. In the West 80s. Okay. Oh, where are you? I was born and raised on 98th and Broadway, so I'm oh, from. But fantastic. it was a, it, it, yeah, it was a different time and place when things were a little bit more rogue. It was like the wild, wild west. So, you know, pre pre-Giuliani, yeah. Giuliani, when things were a little chaotic. Well, Fiona, let me ask you. Things so were, does things were gritty. Things were gritty. Way, way more textured. Yeah. <laughs> Texture. That's really. I love um, using that word to describe gritty. So, is your history in New York? Do you think that that 
is responsible for the genesis of your interest in art? Yeah, I think so. You know, each book, I seem to be tackling a different art form. So the first book was set at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, and it was, you know, centered around a, a jazz club and, and explored bebop. And the second book was set at the Dakota Apartment House and really explored architecture. And so for this book, although I wasn't specifically looking for some kind of art form to focus, once I, once I locked into the Grand Central School of Art, I knew it had to be that. And I was a little worried, to be honest, because I, it's not a subject um, that I know well um, or that I feel that I'm competent in. But I think as a former journalist, I can go back and figure out as much as I can and stuff my head with information and um, hopefully make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. Oh, well, you <laughs> fooled me for sure. I definitely think that you know what you're talking about. And it was just such a wonderful picture that you painted of that era. And I had no idea that there was an art school in Grand Central Terminal. And also, you are very uh, right to say that it is not Grand Central Station, which everybody calls it, but in fact, Grand Central <laughs> Terminal. So I love that. I love the little facts about the terminal that you throw in, like the Tiffany glass outside and the whispering wall. And you, you talk a lot about the information booth, which I believe that clock is made up of opals, right? Maybe $10 million yes. worth of opals? Yes, that is the rumor. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> so what were some other things that you discovered about that art school, this really un undiscovered gem that I'm so happy that you re-enlivened for us? Yeah, you know, I, I learned that it was around for 20 years. It had around 900 students a year. And what really, um, you know, I remember reading in the New York Times in the 1920s, I could go back and find articles that mentioned the Grand Central School of Art, and it talked about how they were breaking through the roof to put in north-facing skylights for it um, to get air, to get, you know, the right lighting for a school of art. It was located on the very top floor of the East Wing. And, um, yeah, it, it's pretty fabulous. I read an article that described the students dashing across the Grand Concourse in fancy dress on their way to a masquerade ball that the school held every May. And, and that just ignited my imagination. And I also learned that there was the Grand Central Galleries, and there was an art gallery even, I think, a year or two before the school began. And so commuters would come on up to the gallery and wander around and check out the art and then go catch their train. It was very civilized. The uh, one of the founders being John Singer Sargent, one of my favorite painters of all time. I think one of the greatest American painters of all time. Uh, just incredible. Is there any artist? Because I studied, I went to high school music and performing arts, and I went to LaGuardia, so I was an art student. Oh. I was an art student in New York, and I, I studied also at the Art Students League uh, for quite some time on Fifty Seventh Street. Uh, I sure. I wanted. Did you ever visit the Art Students League to kind of get a feeling of that? that vibe of what's, what was happening then happening now? That's exactly what I did. Um, because that was the closest I could get to, because, you know, that was around, I think even before Grand Central School of Art, that's been around since the 1800s. And, um, and I, I was able to meet the curator there and she gave me a wonderful tour as classes were in session. So I could really get a sense of what it smells like, you know, what, what it looks like. Um, and that was so valuable. She also gave me some 
copies of old um, course catalogs so I could see what they charged, um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the Art Students League is just incredible, and I'm, yeah. I'm absolutely indebted to them. Well, a lot of, a lot of important people came, came out of there. Uh, Norman Rockwell used to study at the Art Students League, and his teacher, uh, Bridgman, who was one of the greatest draftsmen of all time, who drew in the, uh, in, in the Renaissance fashion, he was a he. He has a lot of books called Constructive Anatomy. He's a very important teacher. Even obviously, as he's passed away, for for students today, I have a lot of my students read uh, Bridgman's books. But a lot of people studied there. A lot of really important people. Are there any artists that came from this academy uh, that that Sergeant was? the the head was, was he instructing there i'm sorry i'm asking you two questions simultaneously but i'm so excited by sergeant <laughs> you have no idea like i'm a, I'm a sergeant fanatic so like a is there did did he actually teach there or was he just did he just put his name on there and b was there any real great students that came out of there either in the fine art or illustration world that come to mind you know, I, I believe um, John Singer Sargent died very soon after it opened. Um, do you do you know the date of his death? Because I know the school. I don't, but in... Google does, so I will tell <laughs> Google's you. Google's about to tell yeah. us. I'm about to look that up. We don't we don't lie here. We just we just Google things. Yeah, just... I know the. Um, yeah. Oh, um, as an art historian, we have to memorize countless dates of paintings, but death dates, that <laughs> happily we don't four, know. <laughs> April 14th, 1925. God. Oh, he was only 69. Okay. Wow. wow. 69. He was... Yeah, and the school, the school was officially opened in 24, so my guess is he didn't have a whole lot of... Right. Um, of active influence. You know, contact in, yeah, yeah, once, once it came up. And I, of course, am on Google and, and Googling notable alumni, so I sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's okay. That, that was not important. That's just me geeking out on the fact that No, Sergeant... it is important. Is, so no, what, is, what does Google tell you? It is important. Charles Adams came from the Grand Central School Oh, wow. The, the New Yorker illustrator? Yes. Oh, yeah. He's, he's dope. He's incredible. Yeah, he is incredible. Yeah. Well, look, you know, a lot of people came... I'm sure a lot of great artists came from that school and a lot of people came sure certainly from from New York and you know it's it's interesting and I I think you're talking about like you said now with the exodus of all these artists this was an important time and place where you know artists were being born from the loins of artistic madness and creativity and now you're not going to get that as much, you know, and that's just part of the fact that the world is a bigger place and that New York is really being inhabited by a lot of people from Wisconsin who are on Wall Street. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, what I also really appreciated about that is just so many people who know a cursory amount of information about art schools might think of Paris or Rome and the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. But the fact that you're highlighting a significant art school with significant art players that's in New York, it, I think, really adds to the the experience of American tastemakers making an impact. So I, I loved that. And I was really happy that you included this in, as such a rich element of your novel. Yeah, you know, I, I just couldn't resist. It was, and it was really a time when, when I guess the New York school was establishing itself. 
Um, and so, you know, to, to get the, to, I want my readers to feel like they're there with Arshul Gorky and being inspired and being faced with challenges like the Great Depression and, and, you know, how did, how did artists deal with that crisis? And, and so it's, it's really fun kind of capturing a city and an art scene in flux between the heady roaring twenties and then the depths of the Great Depression. Sure. And then another world that you really articulate, which I thought personally was fun because I went to school at this place, was the world of the auction house. And I was wondering, did you get to attend an auction at Christie's or Sotheby's to get to feel the vibe and the energy of that space? No, I did not, but I watched YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> the the modern-day writer. This is how she works. <laughs> I, I am, you know, I normally um, do a lot of research in person. For example, for this book, I interviewed, um, you know, architectural historians and restoration contractors. And I went to Avery Library at Columbia, which is an architectural library, to go through floor plans and old photos from when the, the terminal was first built in 1913. You know, I, I do as much as I can out there in the field. Um, but when it came, the auction scene is later in the book. And so I was under a deadline. And so I spent the afternoon watching wonderful videos because it really is a, a dance almost. It's almost this physical manifestation that the, the auctioneer is doing. It's almost like musical theater. Absolutely. It's an auctioneer at work. It is. It's performative and it's so elegant the way that the auctioneer will navigate all of these paddles and to make people feel seen but not too seen that they don't want to spend more it's really an incredible and complicated equation and I'm glad that you were able to see at least the YouTube videos but yeah that's a fun thing that not a lot of people do and I'm wondering in all the research that you've done how has that research shaped your opinion of the art world you know, I think I find it less daunting now. It, it always felt like it was something that you'd either have to have a PhD or you shouldn't bother with. You know, I, I, I have friends who are, who love to go to museums and I, I, you know, go along and, and I, I was in, immersed in it and I loved it. But it's amazing how with just a little information, you, you feel like you're part of it as opposed to an observer. And, and so for me, I think part of doing the book is to get people out there and looking at art and, you know, looking at something like Grand Central Terminal as a, an art form itself, as a kind of sculpture. And is it worthy of being a landmark or not, which was a big question in the 70s. And so just looking at the whole world in that way changes the way you look at objects. And I think that's really valuable. Fiona Davis, the author of the masterpiece, which is a masterpiece. It is. It was a really fun and wonderful and evocative book. Fiona, so good. Thank you so much. Thank th- you. Thank you so much for joining us and everybody out there, all of our art fans, and there are a ton of them out there, read this book because she's carrying on a legacy. Oh, you are too kind. Thank you. Thank you so much.